Money Sense is brought to you by the Ellen Becker Investment Group, three-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau's Torch Award for Business Ethics and Integrity. The Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com. Listen to Money Sun Saturdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellenbecker Investment Group. We are located in Pewaukee, just east of Highway 164 and Capitol Drive. We're in that great, big, beautiful town bank building. We're also in the village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank building, which is just directly across from Winkies, and we are kitty corner from Sendex. So I know that you can find us with all that. And with winter upon us, it's so nice to know that we can service our clients in Bonita Springs. Florida, which I do plan on doing. <laughs> and uh, and if there's anything that you want to know about us, and we would love to have you go to our webpage, ellenbecker.com. For more details there, you can get our newsletter, our quarterly newsletter, as well as um, information on all the different um, events and things that were happening. And so we would love that. You can also see pictures of all of us and of our offices. So it's kind of a fun thing to do. And my guest today is, and wow, my guest today has been a guest for so many years, since 2002. So you talk about being able to uh, go through the markets and and think about, you know, all the things that have changed and what we can um, anticipate. Because as you know, I always have him bring his bowling ball, (laughs) his bag with his crystal ball in it. And my guest today is Mike Roth, and he is the founding principal with Stark Investments. And Mike, you've been through a lot. Well, it's both a blessing and a curse. Um, I guess. (laughs) um, As we look at um, where we are and what's going on, I think that the uh, sort of context is one of, it's, it's confusing time. And when I say experience is both a blessing and a curse, you, you tend to filter things through your experience. So we see data, we see the markets move, and we see various uh, steps by, uh, by the authorities. And you have an idea in your mind what that means for your investing process and, and how you should invest and what kind of risk you should be taking on. And, of course, what we've talked about now for many sessions over the last couple of years is how different everything is now. Uh, so you you have to struggle, and I, I know a lot of my uh, uh, a lot of the older listeners here probably struggle with this because you have a set way, sort of the physics of the investment universe and how those laws work. And now we're in an environment where things have changed dramatically. Uh, the markets have changed dramatically, and we've talked in the past about how things like uh, the quants and the trading programs and ETFs. Uh, it, it, it's just changed how the markets work. Um, we've also seen a dramatic change in how central ba- banks function. And we're going to get to this because th- this is the central focus right now, what's going on at the central banks. And the central banks have become hyper-activist. Beginning uh, after 2008, uh, we've, we've seen central banks not just wait for things to happen or, or, or be in you know, more conservative mode. They've become extremely activist. And uh, that has driven very much what has been going on with the markets. So it's, it's challenging for anyone who has had an experience with the markets going back several years 
to now try to figure out how do I take all this input? I see the talking heads on television. I see the data. I read about this. I read about that. And, and what does that then mean for how uh, uh, you might invest? Because your experience can betray you in a sense. Because, as an individual. As an individual, how right. Because, you, because yes. you're used to thinking if X happens, then Y happens. And you're looking at X and you're going, well, wait a second, what happened to Y? Y is not happening. We get, we're getting Z instead. I don't understand this. It's confusing to me. So that's why even now uh, you see a lot of people in conservative mode. So if, if you look at where we are today and where we've been the last couple of months, um, it's it's good time for us to talk because it's sort of an inflection point, a mini inflection point among a lot of different uh, events. So I think up until quite recently, people were still conservative and still worried and still uh, feeling like we could be uh, heading into a recession because we haven't had one for so long. We're due. We're way overdue. And they look at the economic data, and the data has been mixed, which, of course, means that there's something for everyone. You like your glass half full? You like <laughs> your glass half empty? You know, pick your data. There, there's something there. So it, again, confusing because you see very intelligent people, uh, the talking heads on television, uh, with diametrically different views. Mm-hmm. We are in a recession or we're on the cusp of a recession versus some people now saying we may not have a recession for three or four years. So it, it's sort of all over the place. Um, but I would say the, the, the biggest thing you have to acknowledge is it's different now. And so you have to sometimes question your own instincts and try to adjust them to this new reality. So stepping back from that. So just, just take that. I have, to, I have to not necessarily have the old response function I've always had to a certain piece of economic news or a certain way the market moves. Now, but the, it was so simple before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, and people would even maybe say, they'd come in and say, I don't really understand it. But it was just so simple before. And now it's not simple. No, and I think that, number one, it's, it's not simple because things have become more complex. Um, it's much more of a global economy. It's much more of an um, environment where things change so quickly. Computers. Well, exactly. And you look at – you can look at retail um, and what's been going on there and the advent of Amazon and everything that's gone on in retail. You can look at employment, the gig economy. There, there are so many variables. The, the economy, the markets, it's, it's a multivariate – that is a way of saying essentially so many different elements influence what happens between the, the economy and the markets and government action and everything else. And if anything, it's gotten more complex. And how they interact, as I said, has changed. And it's changed in ways that, number one, we don't fully maybe appreciate, given our past experience. But number two, even how they interact seems to change over time. So you think you've got it figured out at one point, and then you have to walk that back because it's, it has changed in some fashion. But to simplify it, right now the focus is clearly on the central banks. You can see headlines. You can read about the economy. You can read about China and Brexit and trade, all of that. Then now we've got the elections in our face and all these different things. But what's really driving the market right now more than anything else is the central banks. So you look at what's been going on at the central banks, and what we're talking about now is the Federal Reserve or the, the ECB in Europe or the, uh, the Japanese central bank, et cetera. They, they've been on a year-long easing cycle. And 52 
central banks around the world have been in an easing mode. And by easing, I mean they've been making money cheaper, freer, putting liquidity into the system. So that means that essentially if you want to make an investment, if you want to borrow money, it's gotten cheaper and easier. It's a way of adding grease to the system to make the system go faster and better. Um, normally, that happens when things are bad. <laughs> <laughs> and it, obviously, we, we've, if you just look at the Fed, uh, a year ago, they were increasing interest rates because I think they were, in their own way, playing from the old playbook. And they thought, okay, things seem to be getting better. We're more worried now that we are behind the curve and that we need to start up tapping the brakes a little bit pulling the punch bowl away. There's a lot of great euphemisms for this. Mm -hmm. But essentially the idea was uh, we, we, we were in a very long cycle of easing. Now is the time for us to maybe you know, start to uh, tighten up a little bit. And they did that, and the market had a hissy fit. You may recall a year yes. ago <laughs> in December, boom, the market was down. And, uh, and uh, shortly thereafter, the Fed started reversing it. So the Fed has cut rates, Fed funds, which is its central interest rate, three times this year. And uh, they've uh, each time have taken this sort of, well, you know, we're going to see, see what happens. <laughs> uh, I think they, they don't know how much needs to be done. So they've tried to keep themselves in a sort of neutral posture. You can say they're hawkish or dovish on the margins. But essentially they're saying we're just looking at this thing and trying to figure out what we need to do. But the central point here is that they're activists, and they're trying to get ahead of any sort of recession. So instead of waiting for some recessionary things to start to occur, they are trying to get ahead of it. And all the central banks have been trying to get ahead of it. So all year long, essentially, and the Fed sort of joined the party a little bit later than most, uh, all these central banks have been easing, have been putting money into the system. Right now, on a monthly basis, $80 billion is put into the global economy by the Fed and the ECB alone, let alone the other 50 mm -hmm. uh, central banks. Uh, China um, cut rates last night. So they're, they're, they got a different problem because they got to deal with the <laughs> trade issue also. But even they are, are starting to try to ease a little bit. Um, so the market's looking at this and thinking, okay, risk on. If the central banks are all easing and interest rates are going to be low, heck, they're, they're negative in most of Europe. Right. That's a concept that's a <laughs> mind-bending concept, but essentially they're zero and, and more than zero negative. Um, so the market's looking at that, and that's really what the market cares about above everything else. It may vacillate day to day, and in fact, we saw it today. In the last 12 hours, the markets were up because – um, there was optimism over a trade deal. And then when I left the office, they were down because there was pessimism about a trade deal. And so it'll flip around a little bit like that on a daily basis. But the central driving factor right now is what's going on with the central banks and their easing. Let's take a quick break. And, Mike, when we come back, when you talk about the central banks so that people really understand, how is how are these decisions made? You, you talk about um, you can't look at it the way it always has been. Things are changing. So how are the banks making this decision to, to ease or, you know, to raise rates? I mean, what, what are they basing that on? And with that, we'll be right back.
Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellenbecker Investment Group. And I have to say my guest today, Mike Roth. Mike, we've known each other for going on oh, close to 20 years. And all of a sudden when I read this and I say senior wealth advisor, I feel old. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's like, am I only working with seniors? No, that's not true. My clients, though, have um, aged with me, of course. But it's uh, it's that word senior that all of a sudden <laughs> define it by knowledge and experience. There that's you what senior go. means. <laughs> there you go. I love it, and certainly you know that's one of the reasons I was telling you during break that I love it when you come on the show because you you talk in a way and you explain things where people really can understand and. So much of what you've talked about earlier is what's on the news and the talking heads, and it frightens people. I mean, they, you know, they get all worked up because of the way it's presented, and yet you don't do that. You, you lay the facts out, and you give people the information in a way that they can integrate it and not feel panicky or like they're making a mistake or what they should be doing. So I really, I really appreciate that. And that takes me to the question from our last segment is, how are the banks, if, if everything is, is now pivoting on these decisions with the central banks, how are they coming to the conclusion of what they should be doing? Sure. Uh, the banks um, have access to a tremendous amount of data. Um, they sometimes give hints as to what they're seeing, and other times they don't, which makes people nervous. So when the central banks are doing what they're doing now, this extreme easing cycle, which has been going on for a year, and, and you're starting to see it take effect because usually the, the, the process takes about a year to play out. When they start easing, it doesn't happen tomorrow or the next month. It takes almost 12 months for it to start to filter through mm -hmm. the global economy. And that's why you're, you're seeing, I think, more of the impact of that easing now. But they're looking at a, a tremendous amount of data. And sometimes when people uh, are looking at data, too, and they're saying, I don't understand why the central banks are so aggressive here because the data is not that bad. Well, it, it's, then you get to second-guessing. They're going, well, are they seeing something that <laughs> we're not seeing? Um, or are they simply just trying to be overly cautious and say, I'd rather err on the side of cutting here, easing, because it's easier to push off a recession than it is to stop one after it started. That's, that's one way of looking at it. Um, other people say the central banks are clueless and, <laughs> and they're just, they don't know what to do and they're throwing stuff against the wall. So it, it, you can read a lot about what's going on with the Fed or the European Central Bank and people have all kinds of opinions about what's really going on. But as always, look at what they do, not at what they say. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing, what they have been doing, as I said, for the last 12 months, has been just uh, putting a tremendous amount of liquidity into the system. So they clearly have been concerned at the data they're seeing, however you see that. And you may say – you may differ with them, and you may say the data hasn't been that bad. But it's been bad enough that they feel like they want to get in front of, of this situation and forestall any potential recession. So when you look at – let's pivot from that to the economy. What, what are we seeing right now? And I said this was a good time for us to talk because – up until recently, uh, again, you've seen a lot of different opinions on where's the economy going, both the U.S. economy and the global economy. Uh, the U.S. economy has been holding up better 
uh, than um, the rest of the world. Uh, Europe has been struggling, uh, and that's why we've seen the ECB so uh, uh, powerful with this response to it. Uh, the U.S. Um, has been uh, better. Uh, the proverbial cleanest, dirty shirt in the laundry. <laughs> <laughs> but you look at what's been going on in, on the employment side, tremendous. We know where we are. We're, we're at very low uh, unemployment levels. Uh, retail has been holding up, et cetera, et cetera. So it's been harder for the Fed to say, well, we've got an emergency here and we've got to start cutting aggressively. I think the Fed, though, has got its eye both on the U.S. economy, again, trying to get in front of a potential issue, but also, they're very conscious of the role of the dollar and uh, its role in the global economy. So I think they've been concerned that uh, they don't want uh, to be too out of sync with the other central banks. So you put all that together, mm -hmm. we've seen the Fed cutting. So the economy right now, if you just said right now, where are we today? Um, it appears, and I, I say this guardedly because <laughs> the numbers come in every week, every month, and, and they're all over the place. Uh, but I think there's a consensus growing among economists that um, we are bottoming. At least the U.S. economy is starting to bottom. And even the global economy, we're starting to see some of the data uh, flatten out to maybe tick up a little bit. And, there, and it's not great, um, particularly outside of the United States. The economic data hasn't been great. Um, but when you look particularly at the U.S. now, you'd say, well, you know, the um, – uh, unemployment levels are still very low, although, again, you have to caveat everything. You say, mm -hmm. but it looks like employers are starting to cut back on hiring. It's slowing down. The, the rejoinder to that would be, yeah, but we're at all-time low levels, so I can't hire forever. At some point, people are going to be full of all the workers they need. Um, uh, consumer net worth is, is at high levels, mm -hmm. and not, not surprising uh, because stock market's up way up, all-time high up. Uh, you've got uh, real estate prices have been going up again. Uh, now, that varies where you are, but generally speaking, real estate prices have been strong. Again, you've got the strong employment picture. Uh, and so, a lot of businesses are selling. Well, exactly. So you have a situation where, generally speaking, the consumer has been, favorite phrase, resilient. <laughs> um, and uh, retail numbers have been uh, decent to strong. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I think people have people who were more bearish on the economy have started to reevaluate, and you see them throwing in the towel. And instead of imminent recession, they're starting to push it out into 2020. And the people who were maybe 2020 are pushing it out to 2021 or 2022. So I think people are getting the feeling now that the Fed and the other central banks are probably going to juice the economy again. Um, and so the likelihood that we're going to have um, a recession is decreasing. So there's that. Um, inflation, total no-show. Um, we're, <laughs> we're just not seeing it, not seeing it anywhere. Um, now, again, your, your mileage may vary, and someone's <laughs> going to raise their hand and say, hey, I just paid my kids tuition, and don't tell me there's no inflation. And right? health care. Health care, the grocery store. But apart, apart from certain, certain <clears throat> areas, in general – you're not seeing any uh, big inflation concerns, mm -hmm. which means the central banks have the latitude to keep rates low because they're not worried about inflation. They don't have to fight that battle right now. Um, so generally speaking, economy seems to be decent to maybe on the cusp of getting better. Um, all this, of, of course, is supportive of the, of the equity market. So the equity markets, number one, are looking at the central banks. 
and they're getting the green light and they're putting risk on. And so we've had a tremendous run now. And you might say, well, we're at all-time highs. Shouldn't I be concerned about that? Yes. It's hard to, again, if you're filtering it through your old experience filter, you're saying, boy, trying to find value when markets, equity markets are all-time highs, it's hard to do. And it is from an experience-based perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, if you look at the picture, you say, boy, it looks like this liquidity picture, this easy money picture from the central banks is going to last for a while. That's not going away anytime soon. Um, and... Um, the companies have been – their reporting has been decent. So we've had uh, up to this date 462 of the 500 S&P companies reporting. Eighty uh, percent of them um, beat on earnings. Surprise. Yes. And 60 percent beat on sales. Now, all those expectations get adjusted accordingly. Uh, and if you look overall, I think the S&P is probably down about 2 percent year over year on, on earnings per share. But that's a fancy way of saying, like, eh, it's okay. Not great, but okay. And okay enough when combined with all that liquidity from the central banks to give uh, a boost to the market. Mm-hmm. So you had a situation where, and I just sort of looked this up this morning, <laughs> uh, the S&P uh, has had now 27 sessions with no two consecutive down periods. So if the S&P has been down a day. It's always up the next day. It hasn't done that since 2012. So the markets are strong, and you were seeing for a while a bit of, again, we talked earlier about people being conservative and mm-hmm. concerned. So there was a huge, there's been a huge uptick in money going into money funds. So people have been parking their cash in money funds. So uh, you look year over year, money funds are up about 25%. So people have been parking their money. At the same time, um, you've seen um, uh, a... Uh, large uptick in um, essentially people sort of dialing back, uh, going into bonds up until recently. So we'll, we'll take a break because I'm yes. seeing the high sign here for break, and then I, I can go into where how that's changing as we speak. And I think also when um, individuals are thinking of the market right now, I – for years said, you know, in, in order for markets to be efficient, they have to go up and down. And I'm wondering if everything has changed so much. Do we really have to go through a recession ever again? And with that, we'll be right back. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellen Becker, founder and senior wealth advisor for the Ellen Becker Investment Group. My guest today is Mike Roth. He has been a guest um, several times a year on our show since 2002. So we have really sort of um, ridden these markets together. He is the um, founding principal for Stark Investments right here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And it's uh, kind of leads into my question and also knowing more about the banks and what's going on. But do we really have to go into a recession if they're working hard for us not to? You know, I think myself included and clients, we've just figured in order for the market to be efficient, we've got to go through a recession. We have to have a big sale off and we have to have a depression. And do we really? Okay, and you were bound by those old ideas. Um, heresy. It's heresy. Um, well, actually, this is a big debate among professional economists, and it's not clear what's correct right now. Uh, on, on the evidence, you'd say 
yes, the central banks have finally tamed the business cycle. And they uh, have, we haven't had a recession for years, um, 10 years or so. Um, and it appears that they now have a handle on this. The rejoinder to that is, no, <laughs> they have no <laughs> handle on this. They're making it up as they go along. And they've been lucky up to this point that they've been able to um, do what they've been doing, just keep using extraordinary um, monetary tools. And the things they've been doing, negative interest rates and using their balance sheets essentially to uh, buy assets and put money back into the economy, that's not how central banks used to work. Mm -hmm. They were pretty much um, dependent upon um, more traditional tools, as they say, uh, like their interest rates. Um, but they've, they've gone to extraordinary measures because they feel, felt they had to do it. And so does that mean that recessions have been outlawed? I think not, myself. Um, and I think actually uh, recessions can be a good thing because um, in economics there's a concept called creative destruction. Think of it in terms of um, uh, firefighters, uh, wildfires, which are obviously a very, very difficult topic for people out in California. Uh, but in order to uh, have a healthy ecosystem, you need to clear away the deadwood, mm -hmm. the brush, uh, for the live uh, trees to prosper. And people would say, you, you've got to let bad companies go bankrupt. You've got to get rid of, of excesses, bubbles, et cetera, uh, because – you, you need to let good companies prosper. And so you need some recessions. Recessions mm -hmm. are, are cleanse, a good cleanse. So that's a debate. We'll we leave that to the economists. But on the evidence of what's going on, the central banks are doing their darndest to either cushion and or stop recessions. So as an investor um, who are confused by all of this, as I said, up until recently, you've seen um, people putting uh, money in their um, uh, money Savings, funds. Yeah. Uh, they've been buying bonds. So uh, interest rates, you look at the 10-year Treasury, for instance, interest rates have been going down. The yield has been decreasing because people have been buying bonds. And, that's, and that caused the yield curve to invert, which is a funny, uh, funny way of saying essentially that um, long-term interest rates, like a 10-year interest rate, was actually lower than a near-term interest rate. And that shouldn't happen. You, you always want to get paid. If, you're gonna, if I'm going to lend money for 10 years, mm -hmm. I'm going to get paid more than if I'm lending money for two months. But that relationship inverted. And w so you were actually getting paid more for two months than for 10 years. And, that, <laughs> and, and that's because people were scared and buying the 10-year treasury, forcing that interest rate down. Um, so whenever there's an inversion of the yield curve, people go, uh-oh, Trouble's coming. People are are freaking out, and we're, and that's a sign of a recession. So everybody has their, you know, here are the three tests that always lead to recession. They sort of trot these things out. So recently, um, bonds have been getting sold because people are getting more and more comfortable that, you know, i got to get on this gravy train of the <laughs> equity market, and I'm sitting here in bonds at these lower interest rates. So uh, the yield curve is now not inverted anymore. Ten-year yields are higher than short-term yields. Again, a sign of more bullishness in the market. And you take this all together, you say, well, what's the bull case? Markets that are all-time highs. You're telling me that S&P is okay, not great. Um, so what is the bull case? If there's, if there's one element here, other than the fact that central banks are just pumping money into the system and making money cheap, it's that there's a tremendous amount of money that has sat this out. Mm -hmm. So I just told you, yes. people have been parking money in money markets uh, and money funds, and people have been buying bonds. 
And if that starts to reverse itself and people start en masse saying, I got to get out of these money funds and I've got to take, I'm going to sell in my bonds and I'm going to jump on the equity gravy train here, you could see a melt up mm-hmm. in the equity markets. Um, now, the, the one factor I think, which we haven't talked about, uh, which is out there and it's the focus of the central banks and it's the focus of, of everyone and certainly the media is on it every day, it's trade. China, particularly, mm-hmm. but trade in general and what's going on there. And what's going on, of course, as we understand, is that uh, the administration, uh, President Trump, is trying to correct imbalances that have existed for some time now. He wants a fair deal for the United States. And I personally believe he is correct. Everyone appreciates the fact that China uh, and their economic miracle has been built on deals that are not favorable to U.S. companies, um, theft of intellectual property, et cetera, et cetera, Um, at least there's strong arguments for those points. And so he has used the tariff weapon as a way to try to correct these imbalances. So there's a daily saga now <laughs> of pessimism, optimism, and it goes back and forth and the market sort of flips around a little bit, but not too much. It doesn't, you know, it might go down because there's pessimism. It goes down, you know, half a percent. And it's up a percent the next day right. because there's new optimism. Uh, and the response <clears throat> function is asymmetrical. I.e., what that means is that um, it doesn't go down as much as it goes up. So if you look at it, it's one step back on <laughs> pessimism, but two steps two step up forward. on optimism. <laughs> so net-net, the market keeps going up, even though n- there's no trade deal. Um, I think any t- type of real trade deal is going to be very, very difficult, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. Um, in the near term, people are sort of hanging their head on the idea that, well, they could have a phase one trade deal, sort of a little bit of a trade deal where um, China gets a little bit of it, what it wants and we get a little bit of what we want. Um, so that's what has been sort of the focus. So the market has talked itself into a uh, phase one trade deal. We can just get that. We can just goose this thing up some more, mm-hmm. right? take the market <laughs> up some more because that would be great. Uh, But in terms of a comprehensive trade deal that really addresses the issues we have with China, and we also have issues with Europe and other countries too, but focusing just on China, I think that is very unlikely to happen anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And there are are lots of reasons for it, uh, which we could take a long time discussing. But overall, I think the trade thing is just going to drag on personally. Um, The election is coming up. That's going to have its own issues. And the market is sort of looking at the election, but not really reacting all that much to it. Maybe if we find out uh, a little bit more about uh, who's going to be the Democratic candidate, it might Mm -hmm. impact the markets a little bit more. But I don't think right now that's the focus. But the market is focused, at least in the near term, knowing it's got all this wind at its back with the central banks and money potentially coming out and everything else, on on a daily basis, very focused on the trade deal. So Mm -hmm. any given day, market's up or down, People, you ask a market professional, what happened today? Why is the market up, market down? They'll give you some trade explanation. (laughs) When I think about um, past experiences with down markets, it's been um, real estate bubble. We've had junk bonds. We've had a variety of things. 9-11, you know, Mm. really caused some uh, major issues. For our next session, can we talk a little bit about – 
Um, do you think that the markets are aware of any bubbles? Because people ask all the time, well, what's the next bubble? What's the next bubble? Do you think that there will be another bubble? And with that, we'll be right back. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Karen Ellenbecker. My guest today is Mike Roth. He is the founding principal of Stark Investments right here in Milwaukee. He's been a guest on the show since 2002. So it's been a, a wonderful relationship. And as I said, Mike, you, you have this gift of talking and expressing and explaining in a way that people really can understand and, and hear what you have to say without causing major inflation in terms of how people feel about the market or um, fear around the market. But people do fear <laughs> this idea that is there a bubble and what's the next bubble? Is it is it real estate? Is it, you know, are we going to have to go through that again? And those are tough. Mm-hmm. Those are really tough. No, absolutely. And um, <clears throat> as much as we might say that the environment's different, we all know that uh, there are bubbles, and when they burst, it can be extremely painful. And you might say the, with the market at all-time highs, without fundamentals that would necessarily dictate all-time highs, maybe that's a bubble. But mm-hmm. I would say right now, if people were focusing on two areas of greatest concern, um, it's China— uh, and it's the debt situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, just China very quickly. We've talked a little bit about <clears throat> what's going on with China um, with respect to the trade issues. Uh, but China is a problem. Uh, China has big issues, and some of them are sort of near-term issues. They've got a huge food inflation problem because of the swine flu epidemic, and uh, pigs are a huge part of their, um, their diet. Um, and so with the elimination of such a major portion of their protein, they've had to uh, import protein. So don't be shocked if there's a farm trade deal of some sort that involves us shipping uh, food over to them, like uh, pork or, or poultry or beef. Um, beyond that, they have political issues. Uh, Hong Kong's in the, um, in, uh, the headlines every day now. That situation appears to be spiraling out of control it's a big issue because it's a totalitarian type of situation politically for them. But to have <clears throat> a bunch of protesters in Hong Kong making them look bad, they don't want that to spread to the mainland. But the, at the same time, they don't want to crush it, uh, 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 sort of Tiananmen Square style, uh, because the whole world's watching. So that's a problem for them. I, I don't know exactly how they're going to d- deal with that. But apart from issues like that, and of course, they're also getting hurt by the, the trade problem. Um, And we're seeing their economy, uh, their economic numbers have turned down significantly. They have huge structural issues. So these are issues that go to the very core of the Chinese system. They built their economic miracle on debt. So this will be a great segue to the other (laughs) bubble, debt. Um, And uh, the debt situation, they've been struggling to manage. So just last night, they had to bail out yet another Chinese bank. So they've had several Chinese banks now that have re- been required uh, that have required um, government bailout because f- they've failed, and they failed because of the non-performing loan situation. Loans are in bad shape in China because they were essentially printing money, um, building stuff, things they didn't really need. It wasn't very economically sound, 
And so these non-performing loans now are coming back and biting the banking system, the shadow banking system. Um, it's a huge problem for them because they have, again, a politically a problem of they've raised the living standards of a gazillion Chinese peasants who for the first time have had a sort of taste of a better life uh, because of the miracle Chinese economy. If the miracle Chinese economy goes in reverse and these people are now forced back into their old lifestyle, it's a political problem for them, a mm-hmm. uh, huge political problem for them. So China is, is something that everybody's watching for because the question is, can the Chinese government deal with not just these, these near-term issues but also these deep structural issues? So let's talk about the other bubble, which is debt. As we've discussed before, uh, our own miracle, hey, we, we got out of 2008 and things are back and the market's at all-time highs. Well, it's because of debt. Every time we talk about the central banks putting liquidity into the system, lowering interest rates, well, the corollary of that is that people have been piling on debt, and that has led to growth. So the bubble has been the ever-expanding debt bubble. It's it's all-time high. I can't remember what the number is now, but we just hit another all-time high in terms of um, uh, global debt. And in particular, sovereign debt, that is the debt of governments, has been exploding. If you just look at the United States, um, we, we spend more than we take in. We spend $4 trillion, We take in $3 trillion, We got a deficit. And the deficit keeps growing at about 5% a year. Um, and, and we look actually pretty sane relative to some <laughs> other countries who have also been piling on debt. So the question has always been, you see all this debt piling up at its sovereign level. And this was the big mantra back in 2008. We're going to, to save the world, we're going to shift all these problems onto public balance sheets. In other words, we're going to have the government handle this because they're the only ones big enough and having enough strength to take on extra debt to help the economy. Well, that not, not only was it uh, something they did in 2008, but they've been doing it for the last 11, 12 years. So now you have um, the uh, debt situation, all these countries essentially spiraling out of control uh, at a uh, level below the sovereign debt. As we know, um, uh, consumer debt keeps increasing. Uh, Credit cards, auto loans, student loans just keeps going up and up. Um, If you look at uh, corporate debt, corporate debt also keeps increasing, although there a lot of it right now uh, is uh, refi. So about 60% of the corporate debt you're seeing issued right now is corporations saying essentially, okay, the Fed is you know, lowering interest rates. Here's a window for us to get in there and lock in some lower interest rates. So you're seeing corporate credit increasing. Um, but it's, it's not, not hugely going into new capital investment. But that is, is an issue because at some point you, can't, you just can't keep loading on the debt. It'll crush uh, everything. So you already have a situation where arguably um, none of these central banks can really ever normalize interest rates. Yeah, at some point, they're going to say, you know, we, we probably need to start raising interest rates. Or God help us, we start seeing real inflation. And then they have to get in front of that because that's the last thing they want to do is let the in- inflation genie get out of the bottle. Uh, and the reality is, though, if they were to raise interest rates – Right now, it would crush the government if they were to normalize interest rates because the, the debt service alone, the amount the government would have to pay to service its debt, would overwhelm the federal budget. 
And that's the same for all these countries that have been layering on all the debt. So it's, you know, this, this is where you'll see a lot of commentary around the, the central banks having painted themselves into a corner and everything else. But the big conundrum is how are they going to get this debt bubble deflated? Right now, no one's thinking about it because obviously they seem to be saying it's more important for us to head off a recession than it is to worry about the debt bubble. So we're going to make interest rates low. We're going to put liquidity in the system and, you know, go, go out and do it and spend money. But Roll that, the dice. that debt bubble <laughs> at some point is going to have to be dealt with. And nobody, I think, has a good handle on how that's going to happen. And that's been – uh, quandary for how many years? I mean, the debt, the debt keeps yeah, rising. Yeah. Well, it was it was not that low to begin with, and now it's it's beyond. I think what people would have thought possible. So, Mike, just bringing it down to the average consumer out there who we're hearing that a lot of people are living longer and health care is going up and they're wondering and maybe they're the ones that have got all their money in in, in cash right now and in bonds and. You know, how, how are they going to live? How are they going to pay those bills when people are living into their 90s and things like that? And so I, I see this as a dilemma for people because they're afraid of losing their money. They can't often make it back. And yet they need – they don't want to be a bag lady or exactly. – it's a dilemma. Exactly. Well, as always, as we've discussed many times, this is your business. Um, everyone has to evaluate their personal circumstances and where they are age-wise and, and their lifestyle, their tolerance for risk, and all of these things. The um, average person, and with the average advice, would be you need to be diversified. Yes, you need to have some cash. Should you be all cash? <clears throat> On average, no. You know, you should have some equity exposure. You should have some debt exposure. Um, you want to have a diversified portfolio so that uh, something's going to go wrong, certainly, and, but you want to be diversified. That's the greatest risk management tool of all time. Um, it's unlikely that everything is going to go south at the same time. So um, if stocks go down, your bond portfolio will perform and your cash will be safe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think as with everything, um, you have to be, uh, do things in moderation, be diversified, um, and just recognize that everything I said now could change <laughs> instantly. And we could be in a very different situation. And so you have to construct your personal finances to deal with that potential volatility. My guest today is Mike Roth. He is the founding principal for Stark Investments right here in Milwaukee. And as I said, he's been on the show so many times. And I remember, Mike, the very first show we did, we talked about the Yellow Brick Road. And we <laughs> talked about the Wizard of Oz. And that's another great show to come back and look at how has that changed the industrial. And, you know, I never realized that all of those characters were um, – effectively parts of what was going on in our economy. So I'm going to get you back for another show. We'll, we'll revisit that one. And, and thank you again for being a guest. And as always, I hope that I've made a difference in your personal and your financial well-being. And remember, before we plan, before we advise, before we invest, we always listen. Have a really great weekend. Bye.